Pop Culture, Episode 1, Action. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Pop Culture on Deprogrammed. I am one of your hosts, Carrie Smith, and I'm here. I'm joined by my co-host, Mystery Chris. How are you today, Chris? I'm good. Howdy, Carrie. How you doing? Howdy. That's an appropriate Texas greeting, yeah. and you are a Texan. <laughs> Is that okay that I say you're a Texan? Yes. Okay. <laughs> i don't know all the rules yet we're still figuring out what things are secret right. <laughs> and what things aren't um i'm so excited for this episode i've been wanting to we did a couple of these on unsafe space and i've been wanting to get back to it and you are just a wealth of knowledge and humor and one of my smartest friends and you have an encyclopedic knowledge of pop culture and so uh, I'm kind of like, we need to do this show because sometimes you and I have conversation like other people need to know about this. How do they not know about this terrible sitcom idea from 1990? <laughs> yes. You know, this is, this is what happens when your parents like uh, TV raise you. So I was like, I, I need to make it pay off somehow. All those countless hours sitting in front of TV in the nineties. Finally, finally it's going to pay. Yeah. So let's start this first episode here with why don't we talk about this article you sent me yes because let's do it i thought this was really interesting okay hold on i'm gonna share this um can i do it yes there we go can you see that yeah i can okay um for anybody who's just listening at home this is an la times article from december 26 1990 by chuck phillips and I'm so glad you sent this to me, Chris, because there, there are a couple things in here that, 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 first of all, there's actually a lot of things in here I didn't know about or I didn't remember. And then the other thing, reading it now and seeing how the New York Times has deteriorated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't you think this is a pretty exhaustive, really well done piece, don't you think? Yeah, because it kind of gives like both sides because it, it talks about how there was censorship or attempts to kind of keep people from, you know, uh, discourage people from looking at certain or listening to certain pieces of art and music or whatever. And, but it, it talks about from, from the right and then some from the left as well. And so I thought it's interesting going back and looking at what the censorship and the cultural war was at the time in 1990 and kind of compare that to what the cultural war is now and, you know, what side we know what side won you know up until now we do but, yeah <laughs> well i and let me correct myself i said i said uh considering what a failure the new york times is today i meant the la times are both failures uh they both deteriorated <laughs> <laughs> okay it's so i'm gonna font, yeah. i'm gonna read some of this for people who are just listening this is the headline is a war on many fronts censorship 1990 was the year that free expression ran head-on into moral concern but the conflict may only be beginning. It's like a intro to Star Wars or something. Yeah, it's actually, it starts off kind of dramatic. The doorbell <laughs> rings. You open the door. Standing on your front porch are six FBI agents and plainclothes police officers with guns and badges. They forced their way into your apartment and began canvassing the place, observing everything you own. Your address books, your clothes, the art on your walls, every page of your personal diaries. According to fine art photographer Jock Sturges, that's exactly what happened to him. Quote, it was a nightmare straight out of George Orwell, 
said the 43-year-old San Francisco artist, whose portraits of nude families appear in the permanent collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Quote, it was like Big Brother in the flesh. The agents left but returned with a search warrant claiming that photographs of, quote, partially disrobed juveniles in Sturgis's possession might violate child pornography laws. They then turned his apartment upside down, stuffed most everything he owned into a van, and drove off. Sturgis, who after eight months has yet to be charged with a crime, believes his horror story provides hard evidence of what he calls a, quote, government-sanctioned crackdown against free expression in the United States. Quote, anybody who thinks the authorities are spending millions on my case just to put one small photographer out of commission better think again, Sturgis said. What the government is trying to do with my case is establish a new precedent in tolerable repressive behavior regarding art and morality. What do you think about that? It was interesting because I don't remember uh, this issue when it was happening. Of course, I was like really small, but uh, it, it was kind of interesting seeing how at the time there seemed to be such a shift towards the visual arts. And, you know, if you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall in recent memory really much attempts at censorship or concern by government or really by, you know, kind of groups over the visual aspects. And that was mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about this article, just how much it went into, you know, visual arts and, and the kind of culture war that was happening there. And now it seems that certain side won <laughs> that part because, you know, we have people literally defecating in the middle of art galleries and calling that art. So <laughs> yeah. And nobody's raiding their homes. I have, I, uh, I was thinking about this, like what a different time it was. If the, if the morality police, if the FBI acting as morality police were raiding the homes of artists compared to now when they're acting as morality police and they're raiding the homes of people like, uh, uh, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas, right? Didn't he get raided? Elijah Schaefer. Yeah. You know, people who have the wrong opinions, it's not the wrong art. Yeah, yeah. So it's something kind of different now. Okay, so this is interesting because they go on to quote David Horowitz. So it says, Sturgis isn't the only one insisting that censorship is on the rise. First Amendment monitors from Hollywood to Capitol Hill are alarmed over what they see as a dramatic upsurge in attempts to restrict artistic expression this year. Quote, I think things are going to get a lot worse, said David Horowitz, chairman of the conservative Los Angeles-based Committee on Media Integrity. Quote, not necessarily because I believe there is some tyrannical government crackdown on creativity, but because I see deep divisions in the culture itself end quote. Mm. That's so, uh, I mean, you want to say prophetic, but I guess it was obvious to people mm -hmm. back then. Yeah. But now looking back on it with the benefit of how many years? Do the math for me. 32 years. <laughs> 32 years. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's sort of like if they could only see where we've ended up now in terms of deep divisions. The article goes on to say left wing, right wing, church and state. This year, the cultural chasm deepened. God, you ain't seen nothing yet, 1990. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's only just begun. <laughs> it's only just begun. I love that song. Okay. Is that is that the Carpenters? I think so. Oh. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, right here. Let's continue. Rock lyric legislation, art-related obscenity trials, anti-smut consumer boycotts, congressional clashes over government-assisted theater, dance, visual, and performance art. Conservative groups such as the Pomona-based Focus on the Family, the Tupelo, Mississippi-based American Family Association. Wow, those are two orgs I haven't heard their names in so long. Like, what happened to those guys? They they used to be powerhouses in terms of being the morality police, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the Virginia Beach, Virginia-based Christian Broadcasting Network. Wow, that one too. Yeah. Are mobilizing to put an end to what they view as indecent entertainment enlisting the aid of government authorities at the local state and federal levels and ever widening coalition of pro family activists have put the arts community on notice that they intend to explore new creative tactics in their fight to squelch obscenity quote. I believe with all my heart that a culture defines itself by the limits it sets for its people said Jean Dixon, the former Missouri state representative whose 1989 lyrics label bill inspired legislation in 18 States to draft similar proposals this year. Quote, if corporations who create degrading entertainment can't police themselves, then I think it's government's role to put the country back on course, end quote. I vehemently disagree with using the government to try to police the culture. But I, it's, it's a weird thing. Like when I was reading this article originally, I objected to, you know, the methods that they use, but I understood what they were trying to do you know because in, in hindsight you know looking back now at the time you go oh yeah these crazy conservatives are just trying to you know shut down you know anything that's not conservative all this other stuff but you know looking back you kind of understand that a lot of them understood you know what was happening in the culture and understood that uh certain values and traditions were being brushed aside without any thought as to why you know they existed in, in the first place and so it was clearly they were desperate. They got into a point where they they knew deep down. I think they knew that the cultural or that they were fighting had been lost, and so that the the last grasp, you know, uh, effort that they they employed was trying to get the government to to uh, uh, try to censor and discourage people from going to these pieces of art and entertainment that they thought was bad for the culture, but it ended up just having the opposite effect. It just made it cooler and made it yes. more kind of anti-authority, which just, in my opinion, that's what supercharged everything in the 90s. Because I remember like, you remember like all the commercials, the kids commercials where everything was like extreme with an X. Like, it was just extreme, yes. you know, extreme caprices <laughs> and just like extreme whatever. And they always had like the guitar solo. It was like some guy going. Like I think that. Her Harold and Kumar spoofed that pretty well. Remember? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but everything like all, so much of the art and the, the uh, TV shows and music kind of had that energy that kind of anti-authority energy and I, I think it, it all kind of fed in on one another because of the attempts and you know started really in the mid 80s or so tried to censor rock music and rap music in particular rap was the big one which we'll get into a little bit later in the article oh will we yeah we will <laughs> <laughs> yeah we will <laughs> yeah I'm with you I I think uh these people knew See, at the time, I, I was one of these people, ah, oh, the stupid conservatives, probably, looking back on it. Um, certainly by the time I was in my early 20s, that's the way I thought about conservatives in the culture war. And 
And, but I wonder how much of that was influenced by the fact that they were pushing these authoritarian government measures. I wonder if I would have been that upset with them if I hadn't seen them resorting to trying to use the government to ban certain things. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I think it caused a backlash. And I'm hoping that if, if that's the case, that maybe we're going to see a backlash against the puritanical woke authoritarianism as well. You know, they're trying to codify stuff into law on the woke side. So maybe we're going to see an equal pushback. What do you think? Uh, I hope so. They, they, it kind of seems similar to what we're talking about just now, how a lot of them are not quite to the point of using government, although some would like, but they're certainly trying to censor more and more people. And it, it, it seems to be happening. It seems to bring a lot more attention, you know, right now stuff going on with Joe Rogan is just bringing more attention towards him. And I think well, a lot of people are starting to gravitate, you know, cause some people are like, Hey, you know, everyone keeps saying not to watch, you know, listen to this guy. I'm, I kind of want to listen to him, see what it's all about. Yes. Well, okay. So here's the thing. They've, they've now pushed it into the government objecting to Joe Rogan. Did you know this? This just happened today. Uh oh. The White House calls on tech platforms to be vigilant amid Joe Rogan controversy. The White House weighed in. This is from an article actually yesterday, February 1st. We're, by the time this airs, it'll be like a week late, maybe, but a few days late. The White House weighed in on the Joe Rogan Spotify controversy on Tuesday, calling on all major tech platforms to be responsible and vigilant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thanks, White House. Thanks for spending your time and money on this. Um, I mean, it's an all-out assault on yeah. Joe Rogan. It's That's amazing. Okay. Let's continue. Uh Tempers flared in Congress last session as conservative lawmakers sought to abol abolish taxpayer support for what they called obscene and blasphemous exhibitions by such artists as Robert Maplethorpe and Andre Serrano. Now, this is one place where I might actually agree with them. I mean, I don't think our tax dollars should be going towards this stuff anyway. I'm sort of, I, I used believe to believe tax money should be going towards art in general. And I'm an artist. I'm, I'm fine with, you know, private, uh funders investors and grants and stuff like that but i don't think government should be funding public art you no know? I it's mean, like let people let the the people who want to buy that art support it or let like you said investors or corporations or whoever support it but you shouldn't be taking you shouldn't be thieving and taking money out of people's paychecks the government doing that yeah. through mm -hmm. force and then giving it to artists imagine if the government was like hey we're going to fund uh pop culture guys so give us your taxes. <laughs> well, I, I think for a future episode, if you're down, I think I want to dive into uh, National Endowment of the Arts and really try to look at a lot of the art that they're funding. Because I do suspect, and I, I read a little bit, but I do suspect that a lot of art similar to with like a lot of the science that's being funded by the government, they're expecting certain um, narratives, if you will, in certain pieces of art money I, as that's my suspicion and i think i'll be right but maybe in a future episode we can kind of explore that and just see what all's uh being funded by by them i'd love to talk about that and i actually i just um was talking to someone in the uk and learning a little bit more about how they have to pay a fee if they have a television that's oh, yeah. capable of airing live tv 
they have to pay some kind of government fee to the BBC. Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, I just, I just, it's so different. But I think we're moving towards something like that here as well, because you know, eventually they're going to say that's what this White House is saying. You know, oh, oh, these platforms, they need, they need regulation. You need to be vigilant. They're going to move beyond just making suggestions yeah. into saying we need to regulate you. And yes. then it's not, it's just one small step to, okay, now your tax dollars are paying for this. And isn't it great? Cause the government may, is making sure it's all safe and all narrative approved. Um, anyway. Okay. I'm going to continue now. Here's a couple, uh, here's a name that's a blast from the, from the past, despite attempts by Senator Jesse Helms, <laughs> Jesse Helms, Jesse Helms, Republican, North Carolina and representative Dana Warbacher. I don't know that one Republican long, long beach to dismantle the National Endowment for the Arts, Congress approved a $174 million budget for the government's primary arts agency. Still, NEA Chairman John E. Fronmayer's unprecedented, unprecedented string of grant denials in 1990 made blood boil in the arts community. <laughs> the arts <laughs> community. Stuff. Come on, give us money. <laughs> blood was boiling. <laughs> Fraunmayer's rejections appeared to be aimed at artists whose work dealt directly with issues of sexual politics, denials of grants to gay artists, Holly Hughes, John Fleck, and Tim Miller, and feminist artist Karen Finley, whose performances have included smearing chocolate and alfalfa sprouts <laughs> on her body. <laughs> Those monsters. <sighs> Karen needs your tax dollar. Karen Finley needs your tax dollars. <laughs> the original Karen needs your Yeah, to spread chocolate and alfalfa sprouts on her body and call it art. Come on, guys. Uh, this spurred <laughs> a wave of criticism that generated wide media coverage. Time Magazine's art critic, Robert Hughes, believes the grant denials brought out the worst in both camps. Quote, as much as I oppose Senator Jesse Helms and his conservative crusade to crush government funding of the arts, I am sick to, to death of listening to Karen Finley and all these media-grabbing artists with their peevish sense of entitlement whining about how the government cut off their grant as if someone had just hacked off their bloody leg. Oh, that's a great quote. This guy could... Uh, I, I discovered uh, Robert Hughes from this article... And sadly, he passed away 10 years ago, but uh, there's some good stuff he has out there. And he, there's a great quote that we'll get to later in this article that just that really knocked me off my chair when I first read it. I like him because he's he's the kind of person we don't see enough of anymore. He's like, well, I don't like Senator Helms or the crusade to, to cut off all funding of the arts, but I don't like these entitled whiny artists either who think they're yeah. owed grants for their crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not everyone in the arts community was looking for a handout in 1990. A new clause introduced by Fran Mayer prohibiting grantees from creating, quote, obscene work with NEA funds sparked more than three dozen grant rejections by major artists or art institutions. At least four lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of the anti-obscenity oath have already been filed. But if 1990 taught artists anything, they learned that future skirmishes will not just be waged on the floors of Congress. In February, then-Governor Bob Martinez of Florida called for a state probe into the possibility of prosecuting the raunchy Miami rap group Two Life Crew for a violation of obscenity and racketeering codes. Whatever the connection, the group's sexually explicit as nasty as they want to be album had soon earned the dubious honor of becoming the first popular music recording in the to be declared obscene. 
It was pretty I'm, nasty. I'm just saying. Wait a minute. Was it nasty by, I don't remember this album. Clearly, clearly I was not paying attention to two live crew. Was it, was it, was it as nasty as WAP? Yeah. Oh, they have a song called pop that. Fill oh, I, oh, I know that song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to that every night. <laughs> <laughs> That's Tiger's favorite. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, okay. Cause I was going to say, would you say objectively then looking at that album and looking at the music today, because the kind of stuff I hear today that young people are listening to is so over the top. I thought it's gotten yes. exponentially worse, but you don't think it has? No, it has. Gotten worse. And that's the thing though. Like when I love so much of that late eighties, early nineties culture, especially a lot of the hip hop, but I'm being honest, the seeds were sown for what we have now with so much of this kind of dark gross nihilistic um music we have in, in hip-hop at the moment and so like when i see stuff like what florida was doing it's absolutely ridiculous and, and i'm against citizenship of any kind like like this and and but when i i understood that a lot of people kind of under they saw where things were going and they saw how how things were kind of getting out of control but as i said earlier Censoring Two Live Crew and NWA. I forget if this article gets into NWA. Uh, I, I know uh, at that time, uh, the uh, I think it was the FBI. Or, I think it gets in the article. I don't want to get ahead of us. But the, the FBI writes a letter to NWA for uh, the cop F, uh, their song F the Police. And oh, so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think maybe even uh, George Bush Sr. even made a remark about them and stuff and so that stuff just made it cooler <laughs> and some more kids gravitated to that but more albums you know mtv started pushing it and just got bigger and bigger and then it's not hard to see how so much of the the seeds you know were sown then that ended up growing to you know sprouting into this this wonderful dystopian culture we have at the moment you know that's a very good point george w bush not W, George H.W. Bush weighing in on N.W.A. was so deeply uncool that it made N.W.A. cooler. Mm -hmm. Just like Joe Biden weighing in on Joe Rogan is so deeply uncool. It's but, just going to make Joe Rogan this. cooler. We went from the president of the United States in 1990, uh, criticizing, you know, rap groups like N.W.A. to the current president, President Biden, uh, before he was president did an interview with Cardi B. That's uh, yeah. right. You told me about yeah, that, I think. You, did a, a, you can watch it on YouTube. <sighs> it's one of the worst interviews I've ever seen. And it was edited, too. She's basically <laughs> going, yeah, yeah, you know, we you know some people, we need free health care. You know, you're going to give us this free health care? He's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> you could tell he has no idea who she is. Can we pull that up what, later? What's, what's Maybe. What's, what's Cardi, Cardi B? What is that? <laughs> it's so bad. And don't forget, Maxine Waters also did an interview with Meg Thee Stallion, who's the other singer on WAP. So the, the leaders, two of the, the big leaders. Wait, the Party. did the interview with Meg Thee Stallion? And Maxine Waters. I did not know that. I yeah, and she's praising Meg Thee Stallion, telling her how great she is and what a role model she is for women. These and these are these us. are the these are the I'm sorry the WAP people. Yep. <laughs> okay. 
Just wanted to make sure. Taking some notes. Maxine <laughs> Water. <laughs> Just got it. <laughs> um, do you want to go through more? There's another quote you said you wanted to get to. Do you want me to keep reading some of this? Yeah. Yeah, I think it gets interesting too. So, um, okay. A number of two life two life crew related obscenity cases are pending in Florida, South Carolina, and Canada. Again, anyone just tuning in, we're reading an article from 1990 in the LA Times about censorship and popular culture. Um, I'll continue. The financial repercussions of April's indictment of the Cincinnati Contemporary Arts Center and its director on obscenity and child pornography charges are likely to reverberate through the art world for years to come. Exonerated of guilt in a jury trial, director Dennis Barry and the institution incurred more than $300,000 in court-related costs. As a result of the negative publicity associated with the trial, corporate donations to the arts, once considered a respectable tax write-off, are now viewed by many as risky investments laden with a public relations problem. The artists didn't make the arts controversial, Barry told the New Times, told the Times in November. The politicians made the arts controversial. I think corporate dollars will shrink as well. <laughs> that I think you're so wrong. Look at all the corporations. <laughs> Look at all the so good. The corporations can't wait to get in bed with people like Meg the Stallion and and mm -hmm. and uh, Cardi B. Well, it's interesting in this article. Like you read it, you kind of get this. Like based on what the author's kind of saying, which I can understand at the time, but they, they you get the sense that boycotts and this kind of negative tension towards these things was actually having effect. But if you actually look at a lot of these things, um, like say um, Married with Children, Married with Children was getting, uh, Fox was getting pressured to to move Married with Children to a different time because the house mom wanted, um, didn't like that it was on in prime time because her kids were still up. And so she created a uh, kind of letter writing campaign and lobbied the advertisers to to stop advertising with Fox if Fox didn't move Married with Children, and they all kind of like wrote letters saying, "Yeah, we, we we didn't we don't approve of the the messaging and you know the, the quality of the entertainment and all this stuff, and we're, we're gonna we're gonna do something about this." And like none except maybe one company <laughs> removed their advertising from Married with Children. And Mary with Children ended up just getting bigger because wow. all this attention was brought to it. And so, you know. This is interesting because the the advertisers today, it's it's like they're not scared yet of being associated with woke. I hope they will be. I hope it becomes so deeply uncool that they become afraid. But they're afraid of the charges that the woke lobby or, or level at other people. They're afraid of the charges like that are, that are getting leveled at people like Joe Rogan right now. Um, they're afraid of being associated with anyone who gets, who gets called uh, a racist, Trumpist, uh, bigot, white supremacist, all the names that they call anyone simply for not being part of social justice. They call you these things. And, and the corporations are just fall all over themselves and disassociate themselves with people. Do you, what what is it going to take for them to disassociate disassociate themselves with woke? Well, there's a, a really good video by uh, Aiden Paladin, uh, YouTuber, and she does a lot of kind of data um, driven presentations, hour long videos about various subjects and the culture war. And she did one on uh, woke branding. I think the video is called woke washing. And she kind of goes into um, a bunch of studies that studied what happened when 
corporations align themselves with social causes and environmental causes and what the reaction is from people from both sides. And, you know, in the video, she talks about how a lot of companies, if they, if their values as a company wasn't previously aligned with what's considered to be quote unquote woke these days, then a lot of people who support woke, you know, marketing tend to see through that and tend to know that they're full of BS and uh, that tends to not um, affect them and those companies that they tend to not get a bump as much mm -hmm. as ones that, you know, their brand was already kind of aligned or service a particular kind of group that's, you know, lobbying for the kind of woke, more woke stuff. And so it's an interesting video. She goes in a lot of details, but, you know, I, I recommend uh, some people What's her watch name that. again? Uh, Aiden Paladin. Cool. Well, we'll check it out. Okay, let's continue because I want to make sure we have time to talk about this crazy sitcom that we'll probably get banned for on our first episode for discussing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure we fit that in. Yes. But um, um, Okay, let's see. The threat of mandatory warning label bills forced trade groups representing the nation's major record companies and retail chains to introduce a standardized parental advisory sticker to be attached to albums with explicit lyrics. While many in the music business believe the advisory notice stigmatizes controversial recordings, others are calling for similar labels for explicit music videos. Okay, th this must have been at the beginning of those labels, but yeah. I recall those labels being cool. Like you wanted those. <laughs> yes. In fact, I knew artists who would put them on their album as part of the artwork, even yeah. if it wasn't necessary. <laughs> yeah, parental advisory. Necessary. We put we put one on a comedian I worked with. We put one on her CD just to make it cooler. <laughs> yep see it's the same thing it just brings more attention and makes it cooler to young people it just has the opposite effect. it's it's like the streisand effect just, yeah it's when mtv the cable music channel that regularly runs biting anti-censorship public service clips wow they used to run anti-censorship public service clips <laughs> i know it's, it's hard to believe this world once existed like what is well, this is this a novel a fiction novel when they refused to air Madonna's racy Justify My Love video a few weeks ago, the network may have helped pave the way for even broader labeling. Legislators in about a dozen states are preparing stiff mandatory labeling bills targeting rock music and videos in 1991. Live music may also be on the endangered species list. Concept promoters worry that city governments may follow the lead of the Memphis City Council, which recently passed the country's most stringent concert content ordinance law, a law under which any parent, performer, promoter, or venue owner who knowingly espouses, exposes a minor to harmful material during a concert may be arrested. Well, that didn't happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's people, who's that, what was that concert where people got trampled and suffocated? It was like demonic and oh, uh, Travis Scott. Is it a great, oh, you're talking about Astroworld. Yeah, the Astroworld concert. Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, there were kids there, like little yeah. kids. Yeah. Um, fearing consumer boycotts and prosecution under obscenity ordinances, many record store owners removed questionable product from their shelves in 1990 and discontinued selling records with warning labels to anyone younger than 18. Most of the nation's major retail chains, including the 814-store Musicland Stores Group, the 450-store Trans World Corp., the 142-store Sound Warehouse and the 140-store Waxworks are expected to continue to operate under such policies next year. Whether merchants will follow Walmart, um, 
the 1,531 store Arkansas-based retail chain that introduced its own banned and restricted list of audio and video products in 1990, only time will tell. Uh, young people don't even know what we're talking about. You used to be able to go into a store and there would be these plastic discs called CDs. <laughs> and you actually had to go physically. It's kind of like what you do on your cell phone, but you did that in real life. You would go to a place called a mall. And in the mall, there were lots of different stores. Like there's lots of different rooms and chat rooms and stuff online. And then you just go and buy what you, and yeah. I had um, one, one Christmas, my brother really wanted the new Offspring album. Do you remember? that band yeah yeah I, I saw them in concert wow. oh you did yeah my, my little brother was really into them and uh i went to this, i went to the cd store and i bought it but i asked them do you have anything really embarrassing in the back that you wouldn't mind giving me the cover to and they gave me john tesh live at the red box <laughs> 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 so i put that in the, i put that in the cd <laughs> and then it was great it was one of those pranks where you just want the best effect it was the best he opened it like what the F is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor John Tesh. Um, okay, let's see. Do we want to continue? Yes. Obscenity charges filed against rappers and subliminal message product liability lawsuits brought against heavy metal bands in 1990 convinced several major record companies to install lyric review panels this fall. Oh, oh okay. That sounds eerily similar to some of the stuff we're seeing from see these are conservative puritans who wanted a committee to look at your lyrics a committee to judge what was acceptable in your art we've got the same thing now but from the woke puritans if you write a, a young adult novel today it's going to go through these puritanical woke review boards where they read your book and they're editing it not for grammar not for uh length they're editing it for whether or not it's woke enough and you have the right percentage of, of different races and genders and sexualities. And you're going to go, your art's going to go through that kind of puritanical committee today. I'm, I'm not, I'm not shocked. I, I think I told you about how there is a uh, program. I think it's the sale program at uh, USC, but they have a thing where they analyze films. They count out just how much dialogue is said by which characters and so they count up like this percentage of the dialogue said by female characters this percent uh, said by male characters and we've determined that you know females are not integral to the plot or story of this uh, particular movie and i have a suspicion that a lot of hollywood is using data like this to kind of justify putting more you know minority voices and people into their you know entertainment based on these percentages and data points well, I'm sure I'm sure that is what they're doing. Um, what is that called? Is it the Bechdel test or something? The, the, the I was talking about the sale. It's, okay. Uh, I forget what the this acronym. I forget what it says. It signal something. But it's with USC pro, uh, film program. Okay. I'm going to scroll down just a little bit. Is there another part in here you wanted me to hit? Because this is very long. Yeah, it is long. Um, there's a, the part with Robert Hughes. Um, they're talking about porn to... here for a while, and they're talking about how they're afraid that um, explicit lyrics albums are going to start to be treated like X-rated movies, like porn, which didn't happen. No. 
the so uh, the quote from Robert Hughes, um, the paragraph oh, starts. Before you hit that, because this is earlier than that, this is this part's interesting. Citizens have also begun channeling their complaints into powerful boycotts aimed at crippling the corporations whose advertisements underwrite what they consider to be indecent entertainment. Clear TV, a coalition of 1,600 Christian leaders who claim a, con a constituency of 50 million believers, recently mounted a successful two-month boycott against Burger King, targeting the fast food chain for sponsoring shows promoting sex, violence, profanity, and anti-Christian bigotry on network television. Can you... I know you've talked about this with me before. They do, do you think in a way conservatives, the, the fundamentalist right showed the fundamentalist left how to engage in cancel culture? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's definitely some influence there. But it, it was but like I was saying earlier, like so much of these boycotts didn't mean anything really. It it amounted to nothing. But now it's like a lot of these companies, they'll listen to the Twitter crowd, which isn't that large. It's just a minority of people. And yet they'll change their way they do business or who they're employing simply based on the small minority of people that just seems larger. And for the life of me, I can't understand that because if you, if you look at the vice, you know, the opposite of that, there's been a lot of boycotts that, you know, people who aren't, you know, far left have, uh, engaged in like when uh gillette did that commercial with the uh trans you know male and the father is teaching the trans male how to um shave and you know a lot of conservatives and people not on the far left side to boycott gillette far as i know i don't, I don't think that had much of a impact on their sales i don't i don't think so and yeah. you know these people on twitter who who demand that companies change their business of the of the businesses that said no to these people, have they suffered anything really? I can't think of any business off the top of my head that said no that you know and and suffered business wise. It just it just seems like for some whatever reason, a lot of companies just they give in to the small minority, thinking they're a lot larger. When a lot of times these people aren't the main customers of you know this these companies. That's certainly the case with the woke boycotts. You will have people who've never purchased or never been an audience member or never been um, a customer in any way who are the most vocal at trying to get places shut down. And I've seen that on a small scale when it comes to like the social justice wars and the knitting community and how they tried to go after and they're still trying to go after and cancel small um, knitters who run their own uh, yarn shops or pattern shops and and, and get them canceled, even if they've never purchased from them before. And then we see it on the large scale too, with people who've never even listened to Joe Rogan, trying to tell, trying to get it canceled so that those of us who enjoy it can't listen to it anymore. It's like, it's not enough for them to walk away and not listen. They want the whole thing to be pulled up so that nobody gets to see it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Where's that Robert Hughes quote? So the, uh, starts, uh, so the paragraph starts where it says, uh, but Time Magazine Hughes. Okay. You can find that. Yeah, there is. But there Time Magazine's Hughes. Oh, well, let's start a little bit before that because they Tipper Gore appears. Oh, yeah. I was waiting for that. 
Um, here we go. Tipper Gore. For you youngsters, Tipper Gore was the wife of Vice President Al Gore, who invented the Internet. I'm kidding. He didn't invent the Internet. <laughs> Tipper Gore, president of the Arlington, Virginia-based Parents Music Resource Center, said that as the free speech battle diversifies, special interest groups on both sides of the political spectrum will begin to, quote, just say no, end quote, to objectionable art. Quote, in the future, I think we'll see more individuals who oppose censorship begin to exercise their free speech rights to speak out against degrading lyrics simply because degradation in any form is unhealthy, Gore said. In 1991, the debate on lyrics that, that encourage violence against women, racism, anti-Semitism, bigotry, and gay bashing will continue. That's not such a bad quote. She's saying you can oppose censorship and still speak out against the stuff you mm -hmm. don't like. And I also think it's interesting, too, that, you know, she's a Democrat. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when they look at the 80s and think about a lot of people who were trying to censor or, or limit, you know, try to discourage people from uh, looking at pieces of art and entertainment tend to, you know, look at those people as being all on the right. And, you know, there were some that weren't, you know, mm -hmm. some that, you know, were Democrats, but, you know, Democrats back then were not as far left as they are now. So. Right. Some of them were still liberals even. Yeah. Um, First Amendment attorney Floyd Abrams applauds the boycott as a positive approach to the free speech battle. Quote, I think the picket line is a healthy direction to go in, Abrams said. Boycotts have their dangers, but at least they are less threatening to First Amendment rights. End quote. That's true. But Times Ma Time Magazine's Hughes cautions that ethical quibbling over semantics what Newsweek dubs politically correct speech could turn out to be the most sinister form of censorship. Quote, the conservative censorship we saw at work this year in the battle over the arts is certainly loathsome, but I believe that liberal censorship may pose one of the biggest impediments to free speech in the future, Hughes said. Oh my gosh. He continues, yeah. the sensitivity police are out to promote the idea that no one should be allowed to say anything that might possibly offend anybody else under any circumstance that could make somebody feel like an abused minority. I think this is a deadly course to follow, one that will not only cause free speech to suffer, but will ultimately destroy the language itself. Oh my Doesn't gosh. Doesn't it get like, you know, saying, damn. When I read that, I was like, damn. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Russian, man. Yes. Okay, that's it. Can we just have put a dropping microphone little thing right here? <laughs> <laughs> that's all I need to read. But you guys go, I'm going to link this in the description so you guys can go read. Look how long this article is. They don't do articles like this anymore. Look how long and, and thorough this is. Go read the whole thing. Um, okay, I'm going to stop sharing. So you looked that guy up, Robert Hughes? Yeah, yeah, art critic. And um, yeah, he did an art series, which I'm actually watching some of his art series he did in the early 80s, like a 10-part series. And um, he's got a, he's got some books, and I want to actually read his books. And he doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be a lot of people talking about him. I know he, he passed away a decade ago, but you know, I was looking it up. It just doesn't seem like that much reverence for him. But he, he seemed like he had a very good grasp on the culture and understood, you know, what was driving it and where it was going when a lot of people were didn't understand it or maybe they just 
liked where it was going and didn't want to say. <laughs> so. 32 years ago, he could yeah. see this. Well, we're going to talk about him. I Mark my words. <laughs> Robert Hughes. <laughs> and you guys should talk about him, too. I want to I want to read. You tell me which book you're getting and maybe we can read it together. Yeah. Um, Okay, so before I don't want to make these, we want to keep these episodes kind of uh, at least maybe just try and keep them to an hour. So we got about 15 minutes left, and I want to cover this. It, if Chris, <laughs> <laughs> I'm covering my face because people don't know what's coming. If you, I, if you had told me this, if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed this. And in fact, I had to go and look it up and still make sure it wasn't somebody's attempt to fool me or your attempt to fool me. <laughs> <laughs> but you showed me this sitcom produced in 1990 in Britain, and it's called... Heil, Honey, I'm Home. Heil, Honey, I'm I'm home. It is a sitcom they produced. Uh, they intended to do 11 episodes. They ended up only shooting eight. There are eight existing episodes. They only aired one before it caused <clears throat> outrage and was canceled. <laughs> but do you want to tell people a little about what it's about? Maybe we can play. Do you think we should play the intro? Yeah, we should play the intro. Oh my gosh, are we going to get banned for this? Okay. <laughs> We're rebels. Heil, honey. Heil, honey. Heil, honey. Heil, honey. Heil, honey. Heil, honey. I'm home. Heil, honey. Smile, honey. Because I'm home. Gee, it's great to be top gun, but it's nothing like the fun that I get when I say Heil, honey. I am home. Heil, honey. Smile, honey. Gee, it's great to be back. Heil, honey. I'm home. Okay, I don't, where did you find this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a secret, Carrie. I read this book called Mind Conf. No. Um, so I, I don't even remember how I, I found it. I think I, somewhere just talking uh, about controversial shows and they were talking about a show that was so controversial and only lasted one episode. And then I read it. I was like, if it's about, a, are we allowed to say his, his name too? We're on YouTube. I don't even know. Isn't it crazy See, how they want to erase history? Yeah. Yeah. I, this I, I, is a I, show I, about Hitler. If Hitler was in I Love Lucy. Yes. Yes. So uh, this the the brief synopsis of this episode is that uh, Hitler and Eva Braun are living in an apartment in Berlin in 1939, and. Uh, they live next door to a Jewish couple, and <laughs> named the Goldensteins. Yes, and so uh, Hitler decides to uh, have Neville Chamberlain, who is the British Prime Minister, over for dinner so they can sign a non-aggression pact. But he's concerned about the you know uh, Goldensteins coming over and ruining uh, his meeting with Ch Chamberlain, and so he tells his wife not to tell. Uh, the Goldsteins, and she ends up telling them, and they think that they can. Uh, it would be a good opportunity to bring their niece to meet Neville Chamberlain since she's single, and so they end up crashing his. And hilarity, hilarity ensues. <laughs> so I, I 
I mean, on one level, I think it's the kind of thing that for a one-off sketch on a late night show like SNL or back when SNL was funny or one of the British sketch shows, like that's a funny concept. Like what if you have a cheesy sitcom, you know, from the, the, the sitcom style of I Love Lucy or the Honeymooners, but you put this terrible figure from history in it. How funny would that be? Okay. As a one-off sketch, sure. You've built a whole sitcom around that? Yes. It, that, but that's the weird thing I can't understand it because it, it's not it's it, to me it's not offensive, but it, it doesn't make any sense because there's no framework that lets you know what this is about. Like you said, if this was like a few minutes, you know, sketch that lasts a few minutes, okay, that would make kind of make sense. But a whole series of this with nothing to tell you <laughs> what the point is because here's the thing: like if you if you do a movie or TV show with Hitler in it. You're going to have to portray him one of two ways, either as a horrible monster or a buffoon. And this does neither <laughs> of it. They they make Hitler a guy who basically talks like Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners. He's got like a New York accent, New York he doesn't have a German accent, even though he's wearing his you know little Nazi uniform and the events happening in the background in, in terms of the story are World War II is about to start. And so you're being, there's this weird juxtaposition of this kind of goofy, you know, uh, lifestyle where he and Ava Braun are like um, all lovey-dovey and, you know, making wisecracks, but he lives next door to a Jewish couple. And so the whole time you're thinking like, wait, if if the war is still happening in this the story that is taking place, does that mean he's going to t- turn his neighbors over to uh, a um, uh, concentration camp or something? Because like if, if this was like a revenge fantasy, like uh, Quentin Tarantino's movies, okay, that make more sense. Like if if the Jewish couple was planning to like you know revenge or to get Hitler before he can get them or something, okay, maybe kind of see it. But it it doesn't. That's not what it is. There's nothing in there. In it doesn't there. correspond with reality, other than what you're saying. These strange bits of history being told, or like like uh, Chamberlain's coming over. These historical figures are involved. That, but it makes zero sense. As it, it's as if he's Hitler, but not Hitler. Yeah. And and, it, and he and and I looked at the the premise of the whole show. So only this first episode aired, but I read something that said in the other eight episode or the other seven episodes there's a whole plot line where he's trying to get his jewish neighbors killed (laughs) (laughs) i mean (laughs) what (laughs) What? (laughs) oh yeah here it is here it is this is from wikipedia only the pilot was ever screened although 11 episodes were planned and eight were recorded in which a story arc involved hitler's secretive attempts to kill the goldensteins wow they had this animated opening too, kind of like Bewitched. So actually, maybe you guys have seen this because if we're going to try and, and put the video in afterwards. Maybe you've seen that. But, they, but the fact that they're sort of playing on what was popular at a certain time, they made this in 1990. They were sort of playing on sitcoms from the 60s and a little earlier, I guess. And it, it just, everything about it is so bizarre. Okay, I'm shocked this made it. <laughs> <laughs> this is 
This is more. Were you the person who showed me Puchinski? Because I thought that was crazy. We're going to touch on Puchinski. I may be, but I've seen it, but I can't remember. I showed it to you. But yeah. This is worse, a lot worse than Puchinski. <laughs> I don't know. Orders of magnitude worse. <laughs> well, the thing is, is the show was rewritten because prior to it being released, it got a lot of bad buzz. And there are Jewish groups writing it, saying, this is disgusting. This is a horrible show. Uh, I Wait, know there were Jewish act- groups protesting it? Yeah, the, oh, it, before yeah, it came course. out, because people just heard about it, and so the the people making it got nervous, and so they actually rewrote a lot of the stories and toned it down, and they brought in a gag writer to kind of like change some things, and it's funny reading about the uh, the guy who created it, Jeff Atkinson, I think his name is, and how he admits that you know his original idea didn't go according to plan which i'm still unclear what his original idea was because he seemed to want to highlight um it seemed like he wanted to make hitler into more of a big bully and wanted to um have conflict between the way people are are trying to deal with this bully but he doesn't come off as bully-ish as i think uh the creator may have wanted him and he just comes off more as a general kind of everyman almost kind of character which it's bad because you don't want your audience identifying and again i kind of i mean when it comes to humor i think that i think that there's no i mean I, i it's hard for me to i'd have to i'd have to think about this for a while i don't think there's any possibly any taboo topic because the worst something is the more humor can help diffuse some of the awfulness of it. So if it's done right, I'm not saying every joke around every subject, but if it's done right, you can make a joke about horrible atrocities, genocidal atrocities. Yeah, you can. If it's done right, you can make a joke about rape. You can make a joke about murder if it's done right. Um, And you can relieve some of the emotion and tension and and trauma around those things with the right kind of humor. And again, I think this is something that as a one-off spoof or sketch on a sketch show, maybe could have handled it the right way, but to to say, we're going to make a real television show with this character. Yeah. It it doesn't make, cause like if this was a Saturday Night Live skit, then I think the goal would be to try to make fun of, uh, how a lot of the premises of 80s sitcoms were getting weirder and crazier and crazier. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, like, for instance, like, one of one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits is a skit with, um, it had Phil Hartman and um, John Goodman in it. And John Goodman plays the producer of the uh, movie uh, Soylent Green. And he's doing an <laughs> interview with someone. And he's talking about the several sequels to Soylent Green, which they weren't actually made, but in this skit... The studio kept making sequels to Sonic Green, with each one no. had the same um, <laughs> twist at the end. And so they show clips of that ending twist, and it'd just be Phil Hartman as Charlton Heston running out, going, "Silent White is people. It's still people. <laughs> they told us they changed the recipe, but they did it. They lied." And this is that over and over again, and it's hilarious because you understand they're making fun of the propensity of. Uh, a lot of Hollywood studios in the 80s to continue to make sequel after sequel after sequel, the you, same damn movie, the Chris, same story. You're making me think of Key and Peele when they made fun of uh, Gremlins. 
three or two. Do you remember Grimless that? Two. Grimless two. Grimless two. Which yeah, is the same yeah. premise. It's a yes. sketch where they're doing a, a fake Hollywood media pitch meeting for Gremlins 2. And like, what do you want it? What kind of gremlin do you Could I have a gremlin made out of vegetables? You got it. It's in the script. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly like that. It's 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 just a bizarre, bizarre show. And the thing is they it was on a British satellite uh service and they are trying to go the Fox route. Because the Fox Network came about in like 86, 87, I think. And they purposely got a lot of shows that were kind of like risque, you know. Like The Simpsons, a lot of people forget that Simpsons was very controversial when it first came out. Yes, Eat My Shorts, there were parents. Yeah. Parents were so upset about The anti-Cosby show, yep. Uh, Married with Children, of course. Um, And then A Living Color. A lot of these type shows. And so this British service was trying to go with a uh, edgy kind of show like that trying to get that same kind of audience and uh, it didn't and apparently based on what I was reading it apparently didn't get cancelled due to controversy like it apparently got cancelled because Rupert Maddox who ironically started Fox Network uh, he bought the British satellite service that was on and they decided to scrap a lot of the British shows in favor of American sitcoms for whatever reason and so Apparently that's why, but I still couldn't imagine it gotten very far if they had so, aired. A few wow. Okay. I didn't know that. I thought it got canceled because of the controversy. Yeah. They lot, decided to do an American show called Terraman Mao at home with the family. <laughs> I mean, or homeboys I, in outer space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, okay. Keep bringing this world of pop culture history to my attention. <laughs> of the deep program audience um let's wrap this up if you guys enjoyed the show let us know this is our premiere episode on the deep program channel our premiere episode of pop culture if you're here from unsafe space we welcome you if you're here from um uh friday night tights or any of our our shows that we're friendly with we welcome you and if you just stumbled across this and you're wondering what the heck you just watched like <laughs> welcome <laughs> welcome to the dark side (laughs) we'll go to the dark side um let us know let us know what kinds of things you want us to talk about in the future this is a show on d program focusing on pop culture we are going to be highlighting some of the great things in pop culture and things to be excited about and not just complaining about wokeness and uh i want to do a whole episode on living color since you mentioned that oh yes yes i got a lot to say yeah, I know. Uh, but thank you guys. Please hit like and subscribe if it's your first time here. And we'll see you next time. You can say goodbye. Oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs>